All right, episode four, recorded as usual in my living room alone with my pets. This is Left Brained, and before we do the regular episode, I think I'm going to stick with what we did last time, which is a small recommendation before we get into kind of the meat of whatever is infuriating me at the moment. And um, that small recommendation this week is going to be the new Tame Impala album, The Slow Rush. Um, it is somehow more relaxed and chilled out than Currents. Really cool album, a lot of fun to listen to. Songs kind of blend together, but in a good way, where it feels like you're kind of just listening to one very nice, relaxing, synthy dance track. Um, I don't want to make any assumptions about why it lists most of our listeners as being in Boston, Massachusetts, as I assume only people who have never met me listen to the show, certainly not any of my friends. Um, but in, if you are in that city or any city in Massachusetts or states for certain other substances that maybe are not readily available in Wilmington, North Carolina, are readily available, I would say it probably pairs quite nicely with this album that is based certainly not on personal experience. Um, that was certainly not something that was tested out this morning and certainly not something that Moose, Veda, and the other producers could ever endorse. But something to think about, Slow Rush, Tame Impala, very good album. So, initially, I wanted to do an episode reviewing the Netflix movie Horse Girl, uh, directed by Jeff Baina and um, starring Alison Brie, which looked like it was going to be an interesting kind of offbeat in the Netflixy way movie about mental health. Um, unfortunately, the movie is actually just pretty fucking bad, which is, um, so there's not really much to talk about with it. Alison Brie is solid as usual, but the movie doesn't really give her a coherent script. And um, that, that's a bummer because my wife and I really liked uh, Jeff Baina's last movie, The Little Hours. Uh, Jeff Baina, if I'm saying your name wrong, I do not apologize. Make better films and I will get your name correct. Um, so, yeah, this this felt like a missed opportunity. Um, nothing really to talk about outside of the fact that it was disappointing. But in the sense that I wanted to talk about the movie and how it, before I'd seen it, and how it might relate to depictions of mental health on screen, um, it kind of led to the idea of what this episode could be about, which is healthcare in general, and how, I mean, that's fairly obviously a huge issue with the current presidential debates going on right now. We've got the two primary states. We've got a debate on Wednesday the 19th, and then a caucus on the, uh, this weekend, the 22nd in Nevada, and then the big South Carolina primary on the 29th. Um, where I will personally be busing voters from North Carolina to South Carolina to pose as opposition voters and elect Bernie Sanders. That's part of what this fundraising is for on the podcast. When you listen to us, you are giving us money to do that. Thank you. Um, and one of the things I wanted to talk about with healthcare and the idea specifically of Medicare for All, as we've mentioned, this is a left-leaning, if not explicitly left-wing, entertainment show for you, is what that means in the practical sense for day-to-day -day people who live with disabilities, both physical and or mental. And so we'll be doing a case study on... Um, me, the host of the show, so spoiler alert, this is going to get vaguely personal. If you do not know me, good. If you are one of our other three listeners who do knows, does know me, uh, you hopefully already know all this information. If you are my dog, um, you are just learning this for the first time right now as you chew on a rubber soccer ball. Um, so my story as it relates to healthcare is that I was born with a rare birth defect um, that had my diaphragm split in half when I was born. My intestines blocked my left lung from fully developing and pushed my heart up in my chest and almost into my back. Um, there was a lot of life-saving surgeries that had to be done, all kind of within hours and days of me being born. Uh, blood transfusions, blood reoxygenation through the ECMO program, 
Um, and after that, I grew up with 50% lung capacity. My left lung does not work at all. My right lung does all of the work. Um, from ages, oof, whenever I was in first grade till 19, so that's my senior year of high school, I had a feeding tube in my chest to get extra calories at night because my metabolism was too high from breathing too much, which, as you can imagine, was a big, big hit with ladies in high school. Um, you know, everybody wants to give and get TJs. That, that would be a tube job. Sorry, mom and dad, if you were listening to this. Um, and so when I was growing up, healthcare wasn't something I necessarily thought about a lot, despite the fact that I had all these kind of issues going on, because I was in a position of that not a lot of other people are in, which is that I was very lucky. My, my father was a um, very successful lawyer in Washington, and we had great health care. And it wasn't, it wasn't something I ever really thought about in the sense that this wasn't an option for everybody. This wasn't how it always was. I was able to test new medicines out. I was able to go see doctors without necessarily getting a referral or getting cleared by a system. Kind of had one of those, you know, a really kind of health plan doesn't exist anymore. Um, and it wasn't really until um, I think maybe 2006 that I realized, or maybe 2007, I'm trying to think. At some point, what I realized, they wanted to do a potentially elective procedure to correct something in my chest. Um, and they said there would be you know, a six-month uh, recovery time, which I obviously turned down because that sounded horrible. But um, that healthcare was you know, obviously much more important and a bigger part of my life than I thought. Uh, then going on into college, uh, the left lung, which has always kind of been the gimp lung, collapsed. It could not heal itself on its own with chest tubes. So I was in the hospital for two periods of about three and a half weeks each. Finally had to have a pleurodesis surgery where it was put back together kind of by scarring the tissue and, um, I believe, stapling it together. Um, that was a lot of fun. And after that, um, physical ordeal developed a lot of mental health issues, which are both genetic in the sense that they've run in my family history, but also can kind of explicitly be traced back to the personal trauma um, I've dealt with with my physical health, which has also opened up a different kind of lens for me on looking at healthcare. And so the reason this episode is called Healthcare or Else is not, you know, to give you some idea of, you know, the left-wing army coming to the door to light you on fire if you don't support Medicare for all, though I can't promise that won't happen. That is officially the stated position of one of our producers. I will not tell you which one. Um, but the idea is that when, when we talk about Medicare for all, if you are against Medicare for all, then essentially your position is Medicare or else. It's healthcare or else. Um, and what I mean by that is you're, you're basically saying to your fellow man, your fellow American, um, and specifically we're talking about America here, obviously, for the reasons of this political debate, um, that you hope we don't get sick, but if we do get sick, it's on us. Um, and I think that's an important distinction to make because a lot of people, I think, believe, well, I don't want to give away any more tax money for something that, you know, I don't think other people need. You know, you, get the, you hear the excuse, well, I don't want to pay for somebody else's nose job or I don't want to pay for... <laughs> Sorry, Veda is actually very particular about nose jobs. Um, the idea is that you always hear it presented in that inverse um, form of, I don't want to help somebody with an elective procedure that's, you know, a vanity project or something that's not necessary, as opposed to the reality of it, which is, I don't want to see my taxes maybe go up a little bit. And if you're not extremely wealthy, we really are talking about a little bit here. Uh, this country has a huge GDP and already takes so much from taxes that with cuts to other programs, this is not going to be a European situation where your taxes are up to 
Um, but you, what you're basically saying is, I don't want to pay for somebody else's heart attack surgery because I don't also want to pay for somebody else's nurse job. Or I don't want to pay for somebody to get medicated for schizophrenia or suicidal depression because I don't also want to pay for them to have, you know, get a boob job or something like that. This is, this is basically what that argument boils down to. And when you phrase it that way, you really see the or else situation in, in its kind of rawness, which is to say, I'm not, if, if we're not going to help you, if I'm not going to help by paying taxes or if the government's not going to help you by um, administering these services, offering these services to you for free, um, no, at, point of, at point of purchase, no copay, um, then you're, you're on your own to a certain degree. And it's worth noting that, especially for people like myself who are of means, it can become a really foggy situation for you because you've lived your whole life able to get medicine and you don't know what it's like to not get medicine. You don't know what it's like to say, okay, I need, I take, I, for instance, I take Advair. I've taken Advair since I was in the seventh grade um, as a steroid to, for my lung um, that keeps me essentially able to be a functioning human being in the world. Um, if I go, you know, a day or two without it, I can feel that. I can feel myself getting weak. I can feel myself needing to lie down. That's something I literally need to be a member of society. Um, but I've always had the option of, you know, because I've been lucky enough to have a family that's able to have it paid for, um, whether through insurance or after I aged out of my father's insurance and got on Obamacare, which is, you know, a mitigated half-planned disaster. Um, and my medicine was still $400 for every two months. I was able to get some assistance, do things like getting help pay back my parents, um, just being able to accept their charity. And I think that's the first time I really realized how much I was dependent on other people to literally stay alive. Uh, Veda chipping in there with some enthusiasm for that statement. And between both my medical, physical medical ailments and my um, you know, psychological ones, it's become apparent to me that, you know, and this is taking place over a number of years, though now that it's in the public discourse, it's a lot easier, I think, to kind of come around to this idea, hopefully, um, because we're talking about it more openly. It's not like a crazy thing to suggest anymore, that we have a responsibility to each other to help each other get through these things, that I, for as much as I would hope somebody else is willing to accept Medicare for all so that I can get my preferred antidepressants as opposed to whatever one might fall in network. And if you've ever taken, you know, SSRIs or benzodiazepams, you know, some of them work very differently than others. And some of them work really well for you and some of them don't. Um, and so it's good to be able to get the ones that you know work for you. Um, I was recently prescribed a mood stabilizer for depression that I was not able to get because my, even within my insurance, it was $948. And so now I'm on another one, which might be working, might not be, but it's certainly not the one that the doctor wanted to give me. Um, you know, my lung medicine got held up for years because the insurance companies and the Obamacare preferred a different medicine to Advair, even though I'd tried that medicine several times and it did not work as well for me. It gave me weird side effects. Um, and yet, you know, if I wanted to elect to stay on Advair, which I knew worked for me, I had to essentially pay out of pocket, you know, the extra if the one medicine was going to be $30, I was paying 430 additional dollars for that. And so uh, you get to the point where you realize that this is a system that's so fundamentally backwards and broken that it 
needs to be one of accountability in the sense that in the same way that if there's a pothole on my street, I trust the city to fix it. If there's a sick kid on my street, even especially if that sick kid is me, I trust the city or the state or the government to help them get better and continue being a part of my street and my city and my state and my country because human life is fucking valuable. It's an important thing. It's, it's, if we do not value that, I'm not sure what we are valuing it. So if, you, if you're saying I'm not for Medicare for all, you, are, you have to admit, I think, that you're saying I am healthcare or else and you're on your own. And because of that, um, that certainly narrows the field of choices in the Democratic electorate. Um, there's a lot of people who have said they are for Medicare for all or Medicare for some, um, but have released mitigated plans. Um, Pete Buttigieg has a Medicare for all who want it plan, which is essentially just a worse version of Obamacare. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has a plan that she's calling Medicare for all, but is actually not really Medicare for all. It has a public option, which completely demolishes the idea of the risk pool and is going to let anybody who has the means buy their way out of it and let the public insurance get super expensive. And so basically what I'm getting at here, and this is probably an obvious point if you know me, if not, um, then surprise, here comes the obvious point, um, is that if you have ever said you are for Medicare for all or that you believe everybody is entitled to universal health care, then this election, especially this primary, um, is the time you can show that. And there's only one candidate who has consistently ever been for that position. And I'm not going to say his name, but it rhymes with Schmerny Manders. And basically, what you, need to real, what you need to think about is how this vote, the vote you're going to cast in the primary, the vote you're going to hopefully cast for him or against him in the general election, reflects your view towards the healthcare industry. I do not believe, um, and this might be a pessimistic point of view, that Bernie Sanders is going to get into office and suddenly we're going to have free healthcare. I think it'll be the start of a process. I think it'll be the start of a move towards what the rest of the civilized world is already doing. Um, but I don't think it's going to be automatic. It's not something that can pass with executive action or, you know, simply just put, ramming it through Congress. There's too many other special interests involved. However, by standing for that goal, putting yourself in that position of saying, this is what I believe and this is what I believe people are entitled to, and also saying, not just that this is what I believe in, but that once maybe this president or whoever the next president is, is in office, I'm still going to fight for this. I'm not going to leave it up for the president. I'm going to pressure that president as hard as I can from the left to say, you have to continue going for this. You have to go for it. You can't just do a, a swap and deal concession and walk away like Obama did. Um, this is your time to say, I'm actually really for this and I'm actually really, or I'm actually really against it. And if you are really against it, you just have to realize that that, that is, those are the options. It's Medicare for all or Medicare or else. And if you're Medicare or else, just make peace with that fact. Because you're saying to people like me, you're on your own. But more importantly, I'm still somebody who's extremely lucky in terms of all the ailments I've unfortunately had to face in the sense that I'm able to get up, walk around. I can, you know, record this podcast. I can watch my dog walk around and hit his head on the refrigerator while my cat hisses at her. Um, there's a lot of people who are a lot worse off. You've all probably seen the horror stories about people doing GoFundMes for insulin and other things like that, you know, rationing medicine that they need to literally stay alive day in, day out. Um, if you are not for Medicare for all, that is the system you are for. There isn't a really, there isn't a half measure in between it. It's one or the other. You're either, you're either for everybody having the dignity to stay alive 
or you're against it. Um, and that's about as simple as it gets. And so you can thank Jeff Baina and Horace Girl for making a movie so shitty that we got to get political today. Um, and when your primary rules around, whether you're a Super Tuesday state, whether you're an earlier state or a later state, keep that in mind because everybody's going to say they're for this thing. Only one candidate has consistently been for this thing, has that actual plan out there, um, wrote, wrote, the, um, wrote the damn bill, as I believe he says. And it's, you know, to quote Senator Sanders um, from how, he, how he's been speaking on the trail, this is an idea of saying, I'm ready to fight for somebody I don't know, and I trust that they're going to fight for me too. And that's what healthcare and Medicare for all comes down to, is not saying, I'm lucky, you're on your own. It's saying, I understand, and I'm here for you. I got your back. I'm ready to help you stay alive, stay healthy, and continue being a person, because I understand that even if I don't know you, and I don't understand what's going on with you, I understand that you are valuable just because you are alive. Thanks. Thanks.